This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the events, issues, and people that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and with me today is Russell Moore, CT's Editor-in-Chief. Today we're going to talk about the shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs. We're going to talk about what's going on in Iran, and a little bit about Thanksgiving. Plus, today we're introducing a new segment for the podcast featuring CT's own Daniel Silliman. It's called, Hey Daniel, What's Weird? And this week, it's pumpkin pie. So stay with us. Russell, uh, welcome to the show. Good to see hey, you. Mike. Hey, so last Saturday night in Colorado Springs, there was a, a horrific shooting at a nightclub called Club Q. Gunman enters the club, opens fire. In less than a minute, he kills five people. He injures 18. He was subdued by a, an, an army veteran, a man named uh, Richard Fierro, who ran towards the gunfire, tackles the guy, and manages to stop the violence. I said this actually before we started rolling tape. This story has every hot-button culture war issue in it, and yeah. it's a horrible tragedy. And it's also immediately become the center of culture war fights about guns, about LGBTQ stuff, drag queens, masculinity. Where do we even begin to make sense of this story? Similar to what we talked about last week, there's a sign of how America is broken and breaking in the way that this has become almost normalized to us. There's not a sense of, with this kind of horrific murder, there's not a sense of shock. There's almost a sense that we've become kind of accustomed to this. And there'll be a few days of debates about various things, and then it just goes away until the next one. I think that's really dangerous. And then if we look at the sort of rhetoric that's coming out of this shooting, it reminds me a lot of what we saw, what, a month ago with the attack on Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House's uh, husband, in which the response was a lot of cynical laughter and jokes and so forth. Here you have this horrific shooting, and immediately you have some figures talking about, well, I mean, what do you expect? And you have this repeating of this language of groomers and, and so forth that really does, I think, show the hardness in a segment of American life that doesn't even have that basic human, much less Christian understanding. People made in the image of God were murdered here in front of us. And we just continue on with the theatrical culture war. I noticed just as much rhetoric from the left coming in and saying, well, this is what your hateful traditional Christian ideology, anti-trans, homophobic rhetoric gets you. Of course, this is going to happen. And it seems to miss to me that the fundamental sickness in our culture is much more about violence itself. There's something deeply violent, deeply reactive about the times that we live in. We're so polarized that there's not an event or a conflict or a conversation that doesn't go to 11 like that. And so what isn't surprising to me 
is that any social issue becomes the center of a violent attack because the rhetoric is so heated. I think that there is a problem with the rhetoric on Mm -hmm. our side and a major problem. And here's what it is. How can we blame people for conflating historic Christian sexual ethic orthodoxy when they don't really know much about it with the kind of language that is used that often is just lying? Bearing false Mm -hmm. witness against people to say that your LGBTQ neighbor is a groomer, that really the people saying it don't even believe. It's just a useful kind of rhetorical tool. And so if you're looking into this and you're seeing this and you see the church kind of merged into it, if, if by nothing else than just by acquiescence, then of course you would conclude, well, that's what they think. And it's not true. They're sort of demonizing a group of people on the basis of something that's just useful. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a vision of sexual ethics and of marriage that is, in fact, one flesh union of one man and one woman pointing to the mystery of Christ in the church. It presents that as something good and beautiful and addresses that to all of us as broken people. Part of what Jesus was able to do in his encounters with people is he tells them the truth in order to say, I see you, I know who you are, to the Samaritan woman, go get your husband and come here. If you look at the way that the Bible teaches, I mean, even Romans 1, comes in and says, here's what's going on in the the pagan nations on the outside, knowing that there'd be a segment that would say, yeah, isn't that terrible? Then turns around, Mm -hmm. and here's what's going on with you. (laughs) And then it goes to Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when we lose that, and instead people become just culture war rhetorical fodder, and you add that to the kind of accelerating political violence that we have, it's a broken situation. How do you think... We've come to a place where this kind of mass shooting is so normal. It's so daily. I mean, just last night, there was another mass shooting, Chesapeake, Virginia, six dead, four wounded. They happen so often, they're hardly news anymore. You know, when we were probably in our early 20s for you and I was a little younger, when Columbine happened, Mm -hmm. it, it was stunning. Everything stopped for months to talk about that story. Make sense of that <laughs> for me. Part of it is a giving up on the possibility of changing it. So mm-hmm. I think that for a long time when these things would happen, people would say, okay, let's sober up and let's figure out, are there things that we can do? And then eventually, I mean, I think about not just Columbine, but think about Sandy Hook in 2012. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of people who were saying, okay, we're going to come together now as a country and figure out how to make this, if not impossible, less likely. And I think over time, people start to realize we don't even know what to do. That's possible. That's not just utopian. You'll always have people who will say, well, uh, if you have uh, armed guards in every school, I guess every nightclub and every church, then that will stop this. That's not going to happen. And some people will say, well, if you just had like Australia, the government's buying back all the guns, then that will stop it. That's not going to happen either. And so I think a lot of people have just sort of said, well, what can you do? And that, I think, leads to the wrong sort of frustration that just leads us to eventually say, well, thoughts and prayers, but what can you do and move on? You talked about the culture war arguments. 
I don't even see the same sorts of arguments about, okay, background checks, gun control, no gun control, Second Amendment. Those sorts of things are almost foregrounded now. I wonder to what extent the rhetoric has just drowned out, you know, the ability for us to even imagine something different. I mean, I remember seeing a number recently, there's something like 30 million AR-15s in circulation Mm -hmm. in the United States. When you hear the rhetoric of ban the assault rifles, for me personally, part of the reason I feel a little numb to that is I think, well, how on earth are you going to do that? Right. (laughs) You you can stop selling them, but there's 30 million of them for a crazy person to go find and buy. I do wonder, I should say, how much technology is playing into the expansion of the phenomenon, simply in the fact that you have all of these venues now online where people who who would, for sad and sick and horrible reasons, want to glorify these shooters, want to see them as, you know, want to see themselves as kind of some weird anti-hero and some weird drama. Mm-hmm. And there are websites, chat forums, you know, these dark places online to play into that fantasy. Yes. Does that amplify it? I think about all the time a letter to the editor. I think it was the New York Times several years ago. A friend of mine had written a book, Ben Sass had written this book on the loneliness epidemic. And there was a sociologist or psychologist who wrote in and said, it's actually not loneliness. He said, we, we have this idea that these shooters are loners, that they're disconnected from community. And that's true. If that's all you have are just isolated loners, you don't have this sort of thing. What has to happen is they find a pseudo community, usually online, and are radicalized by that. So it is the loneliness that drives people to this. And then part of what happens in all of these radical communities is these people accept me. These people receive me. I have to prove my loyalty. Hmm. And the way I prove my loyalty is by buying into all of the extremist uh, rhetoric. And it becomes a really dangerous situation. You know, when you frame it that way as well, the other thing I think about is how desperately needed and how much opportunity, what a role the church could play in this situation if it understood itself as a community that was meant to look for those lonely, Mm -hmm. isolated people without a sense of belonging. You look at who makes up the church in the first century and this sort of wildly scattered community of, you know, barbarians, Scythians, Romans, Jews, you know, temple prostitutes uh, that are all converted, rich and poor. Our churches tend to be pretty monocultured. Evangelical churches often tend to be pretty middle class in a lot of places. Hannah Arendt always used the language of mass loneliness being kind of the root of both how people are susceptible to totalitarian domination and how they're susceptible to radicalization of all kinds. And that makes perfect sense to me in these circumstances. The heart of that kind of loneliness is rootlessness. You don't have a sense of identity. You don't know who you are. You don't know where you belong. And the church has a story and a place for people. But I think because we've tied ourselves so tightly to other sort of cultural markers and identifiers. It's hard for me to see a pathway for a lot of people who are on the margins finding their way into a sense of belonging in the church. Except when you do see it, it's so beautiful. When you see those churches where you have kind of middle-class people bearing the burdens of people who are just coming out of prison or people who don't have a place to live or people whose parents have, have rejected them, There's just a beautiful embodiment of what the gospel actually is in those moments. 
Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. There was a video that went around this week that was really, to me, was really quite stunning. And it was the Iranian national soccer team before a game. The national anthem was played. And the tradition is that you sing the anthem. The team did not sing. It was a stunning moment because it was as clear an act of protest. To me, it reminded me actually of the, I believe it was the 1968 games when the two sprinters from America raised a fist from the platform after winning medals to oppose their own country's injustices. For Iranian nationals to do this in a country with an authoritarian regime that regularly jails and executes dissidents, the degree of bravery and courage it took, it was just jaw-dropping to me. Yeah. So this comes after you know, a couple months now of violent protests throughout Iran, peaceful protests on the part of the protesters, but violence from the government against mm -hmm. the protesters in the aftermath of a young woman being killed. So just to give a little bit of the context, this began on September 16th. The woman's name was Masa Amini, also known as Gina Amini. She was arrested by the Iranian National Police, like the morality police, because she was not wearing a hijab and her pants were too tight. According to the government, she had a heart attack while she was in jail and she fell into a coma and then later died in the hospital. But witnesses say that she was violently beaten and then medical records were subsequently leaked that showed a brain hemorrhage from, from having been beaten. Somewhere between 300 and 400 people have been killed. More than 15,000 people have been arrested. A few days ago, protesters burned down the childhood home of the Ayatollah. This is big. I mean, this regime has been around for, for more than 40 years now. About every 10 years since 1999, there's been some kind of major protest, student protests in 99, the Green Movement protests in 2009, uh, student protests in 19, or 2019. I've watched this pretty closely over the years. This feels different to me. Does it feel that way to you as well? Yeah, it gave me chills in a good way. Because, I mean, we, we just talked about ugliness and, and beauty. And I think about the beauty in this really in a couple ways. And one of them is there's such a, there's such a patriotic component to this, which sounds kind mm. of odd because it's people refusing to sing their national anthem. But they're refusing to sing their national anthem because they love their country, and because they love the people who are being oppressed there and are willing to stand up for them. That was beautiful. And then secondly, the individual courage that it takes. I mean, this is not online virtue signaling. These are people who very easily could lose their lives for this uh, action in front of the world, especially because authoritarians hate to be humiliated 
and this was humiliating to them. And so it mm -hmm. took a lot of courage. It reminds me of it's impossible to predict the ripples that are going to come out for people in Iran who are going to say, we don't have to live this way. I think there's something particularly powerful, and we saw this in the American civil rights movement. There's these key moments where sports figures really are, as much as people complain about politicization and legitimately in many cases of sports, there are moments when sports figures are able to connect with people and say, we're not just athletes, mm -hmm. we're human beings and we're citizens. And, and I think that can have amazing implications in the future. I thought about the phrase, you know, this idea of speech being violence. You know, this is something you hear a lot in mm -hmm. our culture wars over, over here. Speech isn't violence, but it's powerful mm -hmm. in, in my perspective, because that's an act of speech, right? That's a moment of speech that it's a moment of expression that has an enormous level of influence as you describe what it's going to do to Iranians who, who witness that. Vaclav Havel uh, wrote that famous uh, essay, Czech uh, mm -hmm. dissident, who was talking about what happens when a grocer just takes down the requisite sign that everybody's supposed to have in their store, workers of the world unite, just to show we're, we're okay with our communist government. When one grocer takes that down, what that does to everybody else, or even just changes it a little bit to add a question mark to the end of it. What does mm -hmm. that do? And so this refusal, even when it's, I'm not offering speech against the tyranny, but I'm just refusing to live out the mm -hmm. lie. That mm -hmm. causes a lot of other people to stop and say, wait a minute, there's a different way to live. And that's mm -hmm. powerful. It is. I mean, so much of what makes a, really any kind of domineering system, whether it's a cult or a, you know, an authoritarian government, what makes them live is this artifice they create of a world where there's an explanation for everything, there's power for everything, and if you do anything to push against the grain of the community that you are a part of, you're going to be crushed for it. The courage to do it anyway, those are the acts that start any revolution, any transformation. The courage to do it anyway is beautiful and worth celebrating wherever you see it. I mean, I think of Elijah often uh, in First mm. Kings when Elijah defies the king Ahab and, and Jezebel, and his response is to say to God, I'm the only one left. I'm only here. <laughs> and God says, there are 7,000 people you don't even know about right now. <laughs> and in all of these acts of, of courage, that's what happens, is you have people who think, I'm by myself, I'm walking out into the mm. unknown, and I'm going to be a pariah. I'm going to be gone. That person who says, this cult is wrong. This situation is oppressive. Then you find, well, actually, there are a lot of people out there that the mm -hmm. same thing is happening. And that may well be what happens. I really believe we'll see a free Iran in our mm -hmm. lifetime. And it will be mm -hmm. because of things like this. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit.
Well, that gets me to our last topic for today. We're recording this on Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorite holidays. And it's been interesting in my lifetime to watch the evolution of the way we talk about it. Because over the years, there's been a, a greater and greater degree of sensitivity about what the American story and the American legacy means, not just for middle-class white Americans like you and I, but our black brothers and sisters, indigenous peoples, and how they see the story of, of the American founding and of these things that we gather to say we're thankful for. The two stories we looked at today, interestingly, I think, provide some color for that kind of challenge. Because on the one hand, you look at the Q nightclub shooting and all the sort of culture war hot button issues that are ignited around it, whether it's about marginalized people and violence. and But then you look at the protests in Iran and you see what authoritarianism really looks like and the violence and the massacres and everything that are happening as we speak in, in that place. And I think you end up you end up looking at our country and our world and, and saying, man, it's, it's a complicated legacy, but it's a beautiful thing as well. Yeah. And as, as Christians, we ought to have a category for this because it's part of our biblical legacy, our historic legacy. There's a crack in everything, as Leonard Cohen would say. There's, there's brokenness everywhere, and there is grace everywhere and beauty everywhere, and those things coexist together. And so it's kind of like when somebody grows up and they look back and they realize, oh, wait, my parents, I thought that they had everything together and they knew everything. And now I realize, man, they, they, they didn't know what they were doing or they were doing some bad things that I wouldn't do. What does that mean? Does that mean my whole life's a lie? No, it means you've got some flawed parents and you're flawed. <laughs> and I think the same thing's true with the country. We look at a flawed country and legacy and we also see beauty for which we should be grateful. Yeah, totally agree. To me, when I look at where American culture is, with all of its weirdness, whether you're talking about the the melting pot of different cultures coming together, the innumerable weird subcultures that people kind of live in and thrive in, some of them bizarre, some of them things that we would find morally objectionable, whatever it is, it nonetheless seems like a place where a flourishing church that loves its neighbors, that doesn't cling to power— that walks in the image of Jesus, of sacrifice and, and mercy, has an enormous opportunity and can look really weird and strange like this place that we live in and, and eclectic. And yeah. I feel like that's a source of a lot of gratitude from where I sit. Absolutely. This, this time of year ought to evoke from us a sense of gratitude without idolatry of all of these natural relationships. We have a gratitude for this country and for the ability to carry out the mission of the church in this country, which is unique in the entire history of the world. And yet, we see that the church is actually more important than the country. We keep our priorities uh, together. It's a good opportunity to do that. All right, Russell. So this week, we're introducing a new segment to the show. And joining us for it is our own Daniel Silliman, one of CT's news editors. He and I share an interest in things religious and cultural and otherwise that are a little odd. And so we've named this segment, Hey Daniel, What's Weird? <laughs> and we're going to kick it off with the subject that was actually the subject of 
Daniel's most viral tweet of all time. So the tweet was <laughs> from Thanksgiving week uh, a couple years ago. It says, fact of the day, pumpkin pie became a popular dish during Civil War era celebrations of Thanksgiving because pumpkins were grown on small farms, not plantations, making the pie a symbol of abolitionist virtue. Tell us a little more about that, Daniel. People people just love culture war in a crust, you know, politics <laughs> with their pie. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting to see people respond to this sort of obscure historical fact. It's a little bit holiday history, which has its own niche in American history, and a little bit food history, which has a related but separate niche. And yet people, one, just like excuses to eat pumpkin pie. It made them feel virtuous to have another slice. Other people, I had a whole bunch of people who thought I was ruining Thanksgiving by making it woke. But <laughs> Abolition of slavery is woke. Yeah, I was trying to bring race into everything. Yeah. Wow. But, but part of the point, part of the interesting history is that we all have our own experiences of Thanksgiving being politicized or political or just being an argument with your uncle. And this is true with a lot of American holidays, but Thanksgiving in particular was promoted in the 19th century by New England abolitionists as this celebration of a Christian heritage appealing to the Puritans. And they're the people who wanted it not just to be an occasional practice or a historical thing, but something that we do every year to celebrate, honestly, a certain type of Christianity and a certain type of vision of, of the world and a vision of a good America. But so in that process of the political program to promote Thanksgiving as a new national holiday, the idea of making pumpkins a symbol of abolitionism and pie in particular became part of that. This mostly goes to a woman named uh, Sarah Josepha Hale, who is the editor of a woman's magazine and a huge proponent of Thanksgiving, started a letter writing campaign to get Abraham Lincoln to declare a day of Thanksgiving, wrote a novel um, all about <laughs> abolitionism. The novel features pumpkin pie apparently quite prominently. I can't say I've read it, but from my understanding, <laughs> it features a good moment of pumpkin pie. And Hale says that pumpkin pie is an indispensable part of a good and true Yankee Thanksgiving. So there's a there's also a one other sort of historical cultural artifact. There's a poem from 1842 promoting abolitionism and Thanksgiving. And the last line of the poem is, hooray for pumpkin pie. <laughs> Which as a political slogan, we should probably bring back. <laughs> that really go. gives me mixed feelings because I'm a descendant of Confederate veterans who is an abolitionist, thinks the abolitionists were right, and would like to signify that, but pumpkin pie is terrible. So uh, I, I guess I'll just impute all of that to apple cake. And You uh, should probably eat one slice of pumpkin pie <laughs> to defy your ancestors and, and <laughs> take the right side. All right, so I'm going to read a couple of my favorite responses to your tweet, Daniel. Sure. The first one was... It says, this is going to be my new answer when someone demands to know what CRT is. It's pumpkin pie, Karen. Okay? It's pumpkin pie. So this one, I'll censor it. It's blank, yeah. Pumpkin pie is about to be too woke for three of my uncles, and I'm going to get me some extra slices. <laughs> 
I should say that um, the, the the historian who's done the most work on that, if people want to actually dig into this, is a woman named Cindy Otts, who has a great book called Pumpkin, the Curious History of an American Icon. Recommend mm, Nice. Well, we will link that in our show notes. We will link your tweet. And uh, Russell has made his claim on pumpkin pie being terrible, but I feel like in honor of abolitionist history moving forward, I'm going to have to have a slice of pumpkin pie. But then have a, have a slice of apple cake. It's just so much better. Just so much better. <laughs> well, thanks for listening today. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Bulletin. And we will see you back here next week. Happy Thanksgiving. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producer, Eric Petrick. Host and producer, Mike Cosper. Producer, Azure Phelps. Graphic design, Brian Todd. Social media, Kate Lucky. Director of operations, Matt Stevens. Music, post-production, and engineering, Dan Phelps. Video producer, John Rowland. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.